Sonic Solidarity is sponsored in part by the Michigan Council for the Arts and Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, our patrons at patreon.com, and listeners like you. Learn more about Detroit Sound Conservancy, browse hundreds of artifacts, oral histories, photographs, and recordings, and join our mailing list at DetroitSound.org. Greetings, everybody. This is Carlton Bowles with the Detroit Sound Conservancy, and I'm here with Dr. Khaled El Hakim of the Black History 101 Mobile Museum and Michigan Hip Hop Archive. Um, somebody who was uh, raised in Detroit, but I'll let him uh, tell his own story. So, Khaled, uh, thanks for being with us today. And maybe if you could just briefly uh, tell our audience who you are and what is your relationship to Detroit music. Yeah, uh, Carlton, I'm, I'm honored to be here. It's always a blessing to be able to speak on uh, music and Detroit and um, my positionality in that. So um, I was born and raised in Detroit on the northwest side of Detroit, I'm a product of the Detroit Public Schools. I went to Werner, Bobian, and Mumford. Um, as a student in uh, the public school system, uh, Bobian, Mumford, um, I, I had classmates who were phenomenal. Um, when I think about uh, growing up, um, uh, uh, one of the early female hip hop pioneers, her name was Silvery Benson. She was one of my classmates who doesn't get a whole lot of um, uh, play and recognition. But the sister now, um, the last I heard, she was a professor down at Spelman, but she used to do a, a hip hop conference called The Bridge. And uh, which was which was um, incredible, and she would bring down pioneers and and do uh, conferences. So it's real interesting that um, our trajectory ended up being in education and and um, and being professors. So Silvery, uh, Gabe Gonzalez, the Funkster himself was a classmate of mine. Uh, Frogger D, Dice, um, J to the D was lived on Hartwell. I lived on Snowden. Um, uh, my brother Marco from Dopadelic lived on Snowden down the street from me. Uh, the great director, uh, Christian Hill, lived on Snowden down the street from me as well. So I, I and um, uh, Len Swan lived a couple blocks away. So, yeah, I, I, I grew up uh, in a situation where um, uh, hip hop was very much a part of um, our lives, you know, growing up in the in the um, golden era of hip hop. So yeah, Detroit Public Schools was was my launching pad uh, into um, undergrad. I went to Ferris State University where I got my bachelor's degree in in teaching business education, social studies. After graduating from Ferris, I, I became a teacher in the Detroit Public Schools where I taught for 15 years uh, in not only Detroit Public Schools but also the Detroit Job Corps, and um, taught in the Detroit Public Schools. Um, I was a collector, and still am a collector of um, black memorabilia, and we'll get into that in a minute. But just you know, just a background: uh, born and raised in Detroit, Northwest Detroit, and um, that very much has informed my whole life. Where are the boundaries of Northwest for you when you uh, were growing up? So the boundaries of Northwest for me would have been, I would say, 
Woodward to McNichols and McNichols probably to Greenfield and then down to eight mile. That that I think that was my point of reference. And it's, it's probably it's probably a lot different than that, but just in in my mind growing up, that's that was Northwest. You know, the Bluebird, where Detroit Sound Conservancy is trying to make our home, you know, we're part of that old west side, you know, uh, which is now much closer in, you know, to what we would think of as the downtown core, right? It's only a couple miles outside of that. It's closer to Motown, but it's over where Northwestern High School was. Did the Were the families that you grew up with, did you, did you get a sense that they had been there uh, recently? Or that they had come from there? Were the parents from, uh, you know, for a place like Northwestern, you know, was, you know, my sense of that West Side is that that was a place where people were coming into. Yes. Uh, so you know, the, so my, my neighborhood, uh, yeah, so my neighborhood was one of those neighborhoods that was integrated um, shortly after the, um, the, the, uh, um, the wall on uh, near Wyoming. Uh, that that separated the neighborhoods. Right. Um, so my uh, my family was one of those first families that came over into that area. Um, but you know my my neighborhood was well my block in particular was very interesting. My mother still owns the house. She still lives in the neighborhood. She got there in the late sixties, mid sixties, mid to late sixties, coming from Conan Garden, uh, Conan Gardens. Right. And prior to, prior to Coden Gardens, she lived on McNugal, uh, McDougal down in Black Bottom. So, yeah, so that that was the uh, progression. So my grandparents lived in Coden Garden. When my mom married my father, they you know wanted to move on up. So uh, right. coming over to, to that neighborhood was a was a big thing. So on my neighbor, uh, so on my block, there were um, a couple of white families. That stayed for quite uh, probably well older white families that that stayed and they until they actually passed away um, in the late eighties early nineties. Um, but I also had a very interesting historical uh, uh, situation on my block too, where I had a neighbor who was five houses down from me. His name was Mister Little, and he was he and his wife were just great great people. Very quiet people kept, you know, and just like everybody in, in, on the northwest side for sure, kept a very immaculate lawn. You know, we, you know, in Detroit, we we com- we compete when it comes to lawns and gardens. So, um, but you know, he he kept an immaculate immaculate yard and was always quiet, always humble, and always something very stately about him. And but I didn't I didn't know much about his background, nor did the kids on the block know much about his background. But in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was at in college, somebody called me and was like, yo, man, Spike Lee is on the block. What the hell is Spike Lee doing on our block? He's like, yeah, he's down at Mr. Little's house. I'm like, what? They was like, oh, you didn't know Mr. Little? I was like, what about Mr. Little? It's like, oh, that's Malcolm X's oldest brother, Wilford Little, right. who, I, who, I, who I had read about in the autobiography of Malcolm X. But do right. you know, grow, growing up, he was a type of individual. If you didn't ask him, he wouldn't have told you. Mm-hmm. And in the mid '80s, at least in my neighborhood, 
And people forget that Malcolm X was not highly regarded in a lot of spaces. Um, and not, not only in, in the, the national community, but also in, in the black community too. And I grew up in a very Christian, you know, background, you know, neighborhood. So the talk of Malcolm X back then, and I, I would, I would argue probably a very conservative minded neighborhood too. So back then people were not speaking up on Malcolm X like that. So, you know, but, um, the hip hop generation though, in the mid eighties, obviously we, we were being introduced to Malcolm X from, for the first time through KRS one, through public enemy, through, you know, the Afrocentric movement in, in hip hop. So we were being introduced to him, but little did I know that his big brother lived on my block. So, um, I mean, you can imagine, you know, the questions I had for him, you know, once I um, had a chance to sit at his feet for a minute. But once I graduated and became a teacher and the movie Malcolm X came out, he um, he came into my classroom uh, once a couple times. He came well one, one time for sure down when I was teaching at Job Corps. He came down and spoke to some of my students and I, I showed the movie. And actually, he made a, a donation of a couple pieces to the uh, Black History Water One Mobile Museum. So yeah, so I lived in that that type of neighborhood. That's that's a great story. That's an amazing story. It's a very important Detroit story. I mean that those uh, inner migrations within the city, you know, and then of course the great migrations that brought people, you know, many people up, you know, uh, you know, very compelling stories. And um, let's let's segue here. Let's make sure we talk briefly about what you've been doing with the Black History Mobile Museum for many years. You were a part of. Uh, some of Detroit Sound Conservancy's earliest conferences. Uh, you've always been open to bringing out some artifacts. So can you just briefly talk about, uh, you know, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, uh, what it is and, and sort of what, what's happening with it right now? Yeah, so the, um, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum is a project <clears throat> that started um, actually right after coming back from the Million Man March. Prior to the Million Man March, um, I was just a, a collector of, of black memorabilia and became a collector um, after taking a class with Dr. David Pilgrim of Ferris State University's Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia. I was his student. Um, I was one of his sociology students back in 1991. And it was in his class that he used uh, primary source material to engage us in learning about the origins of racism and the impact of racism um, in a very nuanced way through artifacts and these artifacts that were created um, in the society, uh, primarily um, by white folks and primarily for white consumption. And after taking that class, um, my mind was blown. I was wide open to going and find, finding out as much as I could about um, this history in this type of way because growing up in america as a black person you know that racism exists you know that um sometimes you can't pinpoint it and put your finger on it but you know just through experience what it is what it looks like and how it you know how it makes you feel but to have this evidence via objects that shows that from the very beginning of our first experience with um Europeans in America, that this has been a constant thing throughout history from day one up until today, until, you know, until our current times. So um, after taking this class, I started combing 
antique shops, used bookstores, garage sales, um, and such. Um, initially up in northern Michigan, up in the uh, from everywhere from Big Rapids up to Traverse City. I was going through all types of antique shops in those areas, just picking up things from postcards to figurines to magazines, children's books. And, um, and you know, it, it just became not um, early on. It was a hobby. And then it just became almost it became my life's work, my, my, my mission in life. And so after taking this class, I became a, a teacher in, in DPS and found uh, myself using those types of artifacts to engage my students. And one of the things that um, I guess would separate me in terms of um, lived experience from um, a Dr. David Pilgrim, um, a Dr. Charles Wright, and a Dr. Margaret Burroughs, who I all um, salute for you know inspiring me, um, because my very first museum experience was at Dr. Charles Wright's um, museum on West Grand Boulevard when I was in probably first or second grade. Um, but their experiences that informed them were via for uh, Dr. Pilgrim growing up in Mobile, Alabama, was the Jim Crow experience for him directly. Um, and for Dr. Charles Wright and Dr. Margaret Burroughs, living in the, in the North, it was their experience in the civil rights movement, the Black Power era, and those experiences, although um, Dr. Charles Wright also had that experience in the South, too, um, because he went to school at Meharry. So, um, you know, so that that was what influenced them, what impacted them in terms of their experience. For me, a generation out of that, me being exposed to and participating in hip hop culture gave me a very, very interesting lens, one that would be able to critique the American experience in a in a, in a, a slightly different type of way. So, um, so by by um, collecting, engaging my students, bringing in hip hop as a vehicle to engage them in something that they were very familiar with because they were experiencing it and participating in it as well, um, kind of gave me a, a, a in in terms of respect. Um, with my students that, um, you know, carry, you know, carry me a long way. It, 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 um, ended up creating relationships with my students that, um, uh, allowed me to, to dig a little bit deeper into, into their learning, ex learning experience. Um, so, um, after the Million Man March, I came back to Detroit and started doing public exhibits of material. One of one of the 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 um, pledges that we took um, at the Million Man March was to go back home and make a difference in our our communities. So for me, that 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 private collection um, ended up becoming public. I ended up sharing it in in public community uh, forums meetings. Um, actually, initially with um, my big brother, Minister Malik Shabazz, um, and he he was he was the first person I went to. And he had he was doing community meetings every week with his new Marcus Garvey movement, Black Panther Nation. And so he was bringing in some incredible scholars um, speaking about, you know, black power, black nationalism and, uh, and how to um, be of service to our community. So it was through his meetings 
I met people like Dr. Leonard Jeffries, um, Dr. Um, Barashango, um, just so many people, uh, Dale Jones, Dr. Khaled Muhammad, um, Professor Griff used to come through there quite a bit. And, you know, and just many other people. So it was through those types of meetings that I initially set out the first um, small exhibits that I began. And from there, in Detroit, I, uh, just to be clear, in Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these were all in Detroit. Yeah, these are all in Detroit initially. And then um, eventually those community uh, small exhibits ended up becoming opportunities for people to ask me to go into churches and at the, at the same time I'm still teaching so I couldn't really you know leave teaching to go you know do exhibits other places but you know I was just getting my feet wet um I was doing these exhibits free for free you know during these times I mean and really because of the love and then seeing how the community responded to them uh to these exhibits and seeing the the value people placed on it and then even getting comparisons in uh, to Dr. Charles Wright. And I didn't know that's how Dr. Charles Wright started off with this mobile trailer trailer either. I didn't know that until I started doing the work. And um, so it, it just became a, um, a way to give back, a way to educate people, a way to provide access to this type of material. Uh, because, you know, some people were not going to... Uh, as many with as many museums as Detroit has, a lot of people their first experience with seeing a museum in that type of way was through my me taking that museum into these spaces, right? And then and then me encouraging people to say, "Yo, what I have here is nothing in comparison with what you all will find if you all go down to the Charles Wright Museum or the Detroit Historical Museum and those types of things." So. Um, and it's interesting because years later, once I got into um, graduate school, um, someone referred a book to me at one point, and um, the book is called "From Storefront to Monument." It was written by yes. Andrea yes, Bur- Burns. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it was in in this book that she made a very interesting point of how. My museum served a very uh, important purpose of connecting and being a bridge between the community and to an institution like the Charles Wright Museum. Um, and and it, it's important to, to understand and recognize that um, as as institutions, one of the things that we we have to do is make sure that we have strong community connections. Um, and and uh, Dr. Wright started off very much community oriented. Um, and, you know, as, as institutions grow, um, sometimes we, we, we lose that connection. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think what they're doing right now currently, um, I think they're, they're going back to that. And, you know, and, and um, people are seeing the value in having those uh, types of um, organic um, community connections. So. Well, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, you're absolutely right. The, the, the right, you know, Charles Wright, uh, right there at Warren and the Boulevard, you know, walking distance from the blue, from the bird, you know, right. and, uh, you know, across the street of now, uh, a destroyed, uh, public library. You know, I also, we'd be, rem- you know, remiss to not bring up the fact that at, at those first conferences that, that, uh, we invited you into and that you are a part of, 
you know, those were at the Detroit Public Library and there mm-hmm. were library branches really throughout the city. Uh, and so many of those branches are, uh, you know, began to, to go away, you know, over the last right. 20, 20 years. And so that set of, that idea that uh, you would, you know, your first experiences with a quote museum experience or a library experience or a collection experience would be, you know, within walking distance of your house, right? Exactly. And then later, maybe you get in a bus and you, you know, go down to DIA for the day or something like that. But right. that it was much more built into your day to day, you know. Um, let's talk about how, so you did, you've done that, how many years uh, with the Black uh, History 101? So I started collecting in, in, two, uh, in 1991. My first exhibit, yeah, my first exhibits were in 1995, 96, after the Million Man March. And then um, from 95 to 2005, I I call that my my incubation period. And uh, a lot of that work I did from 95 to 2005, 2006 was mainly in the city. Uh, I I, I want to say it probably is all in the city. All of it was probably free. I'm pretty sure it was for the most part. Um, and then um, congru- congruently with this experience, I was um, also working in the hip hop community. So I have to uh, bring that in because leading up to 2005, 2006 is when the shift changed from the museum being local to it becoming a national uh, museum. So in in um in, I, I'll just add the the um, hip hop piece in here as well. Sure. So sure. so we know. So we know um, in the early to mid 90s in Detroit, there's a huge um, uh, renaissance of, of, of hip hop. Um, and a lot of that came out of the hip hop shop on Seven Mile. And um, so in 93, when I was still a student at Ferris, um, I was a part of a, um, well, two things. I was a part of the student programming board at Ferris State University. So I've got to give this context as well, uh, because it's very important in terms of my building my skill set in terms of becoming a a manager and a booking agent. So being um, uh, being a part of the student student programming board, I got um, I I learned how to uh, negotiate contracts. I learned how to work with artists doing um, bringing these artists to campus. So some of the artists that we brought to campus uh, back at that time were people like uh, Joe Rogan, for example, um, who's you know now is you know huge, <laughs> but he was doing he was doing stand he was doing stand up comedy back sure, then. Sure, sure. Um, and and we ended up staying in contact for a long time um, after we after I, I bought him up. But people like Joe Rogan, Margaret Chow, um, and then in terms of hip hop. Uh, well, this is funny. We brought Bill Cosby up there, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but we also had um, well, we attempted to bring Two Live Crew up <laughs> in the middle of their whole censorship movement, um, where where they went to went to court. But uh, in in our attempt to bring them up, uh, the the community of Big Rapids was not having it, and they they shut that down. But it ended up, we ended up having a student protest up there, and we protested for days. And even with all that, um, trying to bring two live crew, that little uh, bedroom town of Big Rappers was not having it. Um, but you know, it, it was it was through that process that I learned 
that skill set. But at the same time, I was also a part of a poetry collective called Third Stone from the Sun. And what we were doing as our little collective, we were mainly inspired by the last poets. So we would travel around to different coffee houses and venues and cultural events throughout the state of Michigan and throughout uh, places in Indiana and Ohio as well. And um, we ended up uh, meeting a, a dynamic poet. And when, when when I say dynamic, she's just incredibly dynamic uh, out of Detroit. Um, her name is Vibe Francis. And I want to say she's at Brown uh, University now as a, as a teacher, if I'm correct, as a professor, a uh, tenure uh-huh. professor, tenure professor. But um, but at the time she was, I want to say she was probably doing slam poetry at the time. She, as a matter of fact, she was, and, and she opened up for the last poets on Lollapalooza. Um, but when she saw us, she saw exactly what we were doing, and she's like, "I'm going to introduce you to the last poets." And I didn't believe her at the time. I'm like, "Yeah, whatever." And I um, mean, I was still a student. I was still a student at Ferris. And one morning, I get a phone call from Umar Ben Hassan of yep. the Last Poets. And I couldn't believe this dude was on the phone. And he was living in Flint at the time. And he was like, yeah, I heard y'all doing this this Last Poets thing. He's like, I want to see y'all you know, perform one day. I was like, shit, you can see us perform tonight. And he's like, well, I don't have a car. I was like, man, we'll come down and pick you up. <laughs> so we drove from Big Rapids to Flint, picked Umar up, brought him back up to Ferris. He ended up staying up in Big Rapids for us, with us for about three days and just hanging out. And man... He can believe it. I can believe it. And but he really appreciated our work. And and he saw my 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 hustle, my my grind and said that um, if I was inter- interested in booking some shows for the last poets, he would be open for that. And that was in 1994. And so from 94 all the way up until recently, I've been booking shows for the last poets um, and um, and. Via the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, they, they've uh, come out, out on the road with me quite a bit over the years. So that was my work with The Last Poets. And with that, um, doing work with The Last Poets, um, one night I was down at this place called the Mediterranean in uh, Mediterranean Cafe in Greektown. And so for those people who are familiar with the Mediterranean back in the 90s and early 2000s, People would know that that was the place where all the artists from three floors of fun at St. Andrews would come to the Mediterranean afterwards. And it was a 24 hour cafe. And all your you, you, who's who of Detroit hip hop was in there. So, right. I mean, who name, name, name a name. They were in there, you know, after after um, St. Andrews was closed. Um, so. Maybe including um, maybe including uh, Mike Huckabee, uh, who oh, just passed. I don't. I don't. Oh, I don't. I'm. I'm. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. But I mean, it, it was. It was nothing to to see Derek May in there all the time. Sure. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, people would tell you, uh, or I, I bet I, I would see Derek May in there so much. I know that he would order um, a grilled cheese sandwich with with tomatoes and fries. That, that was the thing, same thing he ordered all the time. So, and that's how much I would see him in there and how much we would build while he was in there. But, you know, Proof, by 10, T3, yes. Favela, um, House Shoes. Um, I've, right, I've, I've seen him. Yeah, yeah, everybody would be in there. Um, but one night, 
I was promoting the show with the last poets and I saw proof. And this was the first time me and proof ever like had a real exchange. Um, and I had a flyer of the last poets. He had a flyer of five elements. And so we exchanged flyers. This was probably in the, um, about 97, 98. And so he gave me this flyer and he's like, yo man, my, my group is looking for management. And at the time I had, I had never done any management before I did booking, but never did management. He was like, man, give me a call next week. And I, I want to introduce you to my, my crew. So I was like, shit, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll think about doing it. And one, one unique thing about hip hop culture is that it provides the space for you to be whoever you claim to be with the only requirement that you show and prove that's who you are or what you do. So mm-hmm. no matter whether or not you're an MC a, a breaker or a DJ or or a promoter or a booking agent or a manager, if that's what you claim that you are, the the streets will tell you whether or not you're legit, right? So at the point I said, all right, yeah, I'll do that, and I took on that position. I knew that I just had to find them work. I had to find them opportunities. So one, so um, so within two weeks, I was there, you know, quote unquote official manager. And one of the first things I did for them was start um, an, an event called the Motor City Hip Hop Review, which was there, which was a platform for them to go out um, and perform. But it was also a platform for me to bring in other artists to also perform as well. And I would bring in a guest host to host the event. And um, so I, I did those a few times over the years and. Jessica Caremore was a host of it once, MC Breed, uh, The Last Poets, and some other folks over the years. And so that that ended up being a way for me to establish myself as not only a manager, but also as a promoter as well, and um, and help legitimize and kind of um, give me credibility in the hip-hop circles that I, I um, was in. So all that was going on. Go ahead. <laughs> we could, we could, we, you and I, and, and, you know, you've got a story here. Uh, you know, and this is a good point to segue, I think. Uh, I yeah. want to be conscious of our, our time here. And I also don't want to leave people feeling like they've heard the whole story. I want to encourage people to check out, obviously, the Black History Mobile Museum online. I want to encourage them to reach out to the Michigan Hip Hop Archive. So let's leave people thirsty here. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and you've already and you've already gone to that hip hop place. Obviously, your your relationship to it, you know, goes back to the 80s, but really came of age in the 90s. And uh, so just briefly, if you could, uh, you've got a new initiative, recent, yes. you know, comes out of your uh, move into the academy, right? You've always had a relationship with education, pedagogy, or informal and formal. Uh, types of education, uh, but you did. You went back. You you got your. You are now a doctor. You've gotten that all taken care of, and you've got this initiative called the Michigan Hip Hop Archive. Uh, leave us, uh, give us just enough to get us excited, and then we can uh, load up uh, the podcast with some links and get people uh, uh, to where they need to be. Yes. So real quick, the the Michigan Hip Hop Archive comes directly out of. And I would say it's the nonprofit arm of the Black History 101 Mobile Museum. The Black History 101 Mobile Museum has an archive of about 7,000 artifacts. Out of that 7,000 artifacts, a lot of those artifacts come from my personal experience of being in hip hop culture. 
So as a, as a, as a, um, a service and a way to uh, promote hip hop culture, the Michigan Hip Hop Archive is an archive that celebrates uh, the accomplishments and the contributions of hip hop culture in the state of Michigan. Um, and the initial deposit of artifacts comes from um, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum. Um, so a lot, a lot of the, you know, some of the contracts, photographs, albums, CDs, cassette tapes, promo photos, um, and other type of material are a part of that initial uh, initial um, deposit. But I've also been personally reaching out to hip hop artists around the state and asking people to donate material. And so one of the first um, major donations I got recently was from DJ Butter, um, yep. who is one of our, our great um, pioneer veterans in uh, Detroit hip hop. Um, who's been doing some amazing paintings recently, um, uh, um, iconic uh, paintings, kind of caricatures of Detroit hip-hop icons. And I just bought 10 paintings of his uh, just last week, and he donated a bunch of flyers and some um, real Detroits and, and Metro Times with hip-hop artists on the cover of them. So um, I, I want to have a, a, a repository of everything related to the contributions of hip-hop culture in Michigan. And so now uh, I've collaborated with Western Michigan University right. and they've, they've uh, provided exhibit space as well as archival space uh, on campus. And I'll, I'll be teaching a hip hop class in the fall um, that will tie all of this material together for my students. So this is just going to be a valuable resource for scholars, a value, valuable resource for students and a valuable resource resource for anyone who is just interested in uh, that that nuanced um, contribution that, that hip hop artists, producers, journalists um, have made in in, uh, in Michigan. And also looking at the impact that hip hop has had um, on the outside coming in. So even looking at, for example, how many times Tupac Shakur came to Detroit or came to right. Michigan and performed? You know, he performed in Flint. He performed in Lansing. He performed in Detroit. Yeah. Someone like a Dipsy Hustle who came to Detroit. Where did he perform? I just recently found out um, he performed at the Garden Theater for a 420 event. So, I mean, it's like those types of nuances that we want to take a look at um, as well. And then, you know, also, uh, and we can't overlook uh, the contributions of, you know, women in, in hip hop, for example, the things that Piper yeah. Carter is doing. That's amazing. Yeah. Things, things that, um, my, my, my sister, Nikki D, um, I knew her back in the day as Nikki D, but, uh, we know her as Kalima Johnson today, the things that she's doing. So, um, yeah, so we want to, we want to highlight all of that type of stuff, man. So I'm really excited about it. I'm honored to be able to, um, make this contribution and use my platform um, to to kind of uh, corral this material together and just make a valuable resource for 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 all of us in the community. And where can uh, and we'll obviously put the links here in the podcast too. But but uh, where where can they find you all online during this COVID nineteen moment? Um, and we obviously hope you're you're healthy and and and, and your family's healthy during this uh, this time. Thank you. Well. I, I I appreciate you know. that. 
Well, right now we're doing everything via the Black History 101 Mobile Museum. Um, right now, um, the, the link that we have for the Michigan Hip Hop Archive right now is a private link. So there's, we will we'll make that pr- uh, public over the next couple of months. But right now, the link that you're a part of, uh, Carlton, is a private uh, link. But uh, if people want to reach out to me regarding the Michigan Hip Hop Archive at this point, they can um, either call me directly at 313-645-4197. They can email me at bhistory, the letter B, the word history101 at yahoo.com. Or they can reach out via um, blackhistorymobilemuseum.com, blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. So those are three ways people can get in contact with me right now regarding that. Uh, Dr. Doctor, I really uh, congratulations, obviously, on you finishing your degree. Congratulations on this new initiative, which I think just, you know, uh, you know, moves things forward in an exciting way. It's going to have impact here in Michigan, you know, based on, based on all this knowledge that you've you've gotten, you know, taking it outside of Michigan. Thank you. I, I just want to add one more thing. And just to uh, let people know the significance of having this type of archive in Michigan at Western Michigan University uh, here in Kalamazoo, there's only a handful of other universities in the country that have hip hop archives like this. Um, and Cornell University is one of them. The Harvard uh, collection at Harvard University is another. The University of Houston, William and Mary. Um there's one up in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Hip Hop Archive, and I think there's a couple on the on the West Coast as well. But this yep. is a very very unique thing on on the on a national level, and then, so it's not just a local thing, but it's really going to no. give us an opportunity to have not only a statewide impact, but a national and as well as a global impact as well. Uh, doctor, we appreciate you. Uh, we'll talk to you very soon. Uh, best of health and safety to you and the crew. Same to we'll you. Ex- and we'll let you know uh, when this uh, gets live. Dr. Khalid El-Hakim, everybody. Today's episode of Sonic Solidarity was recorded and produced by myself, Carlton Goals. It was edited and engineered by Detroit Sound Conservancy's projects manager, Jonah Raiden Silverstein. Our theme music was performed by bassist Marion Hayden and saxophonist Deshaun Jones in front of the legendary Bluebird Inn, Detroit, Michigan, 2019.